welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. reading for this afternoon is in Luke 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray. Father... We pray, Lord, that you would speak. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak through your word tonight, through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd speak louder than our doubts. We pray that you would speak louder than our fears, louder than our resentments. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us sweetly and in a way that's alluring to us, more than our distractions, more than our idols, more than our lusts. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to hear. We pray that you would arrest our attention. We pray, Lord, that when we leave, we would know that we had truly met with the living God. Father, we need you for this. This is something only you can do. Lord, we pray that you'd make us certain of the things we've heard from you. We pray, Lord, that you'd lift high the name of Jesus. We pray you'd build your church. We pray, Lord, that you would make your goodness famous in the world. We pray all these things in the name of your son and for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. So tonight is our first Sunday in Advent. Advent's our way of preparing for Christmas. Advent is a centuries-old Christian tradition of spending a month to focus our hearts on Christ, about what Christmas is really about. Now, sometimes, guys, we wait a little too long to focus our hearts for Christmas. And so, like a reckless driver at the last minute swerving to get his, to the off-ramp, sometimes what we'll do is on Christmas Day, we'll go like, oh, that's right, this is, a, this is about Jesus. And we'll try to swerve ourselves and our whole family into that place. And it's super obvious, right? Super obvious when we do that. Super obvious when we try to, at the last minute, make this meaningful. And so what Advent does is it, it, it on-ramps us. Over one month, over weeks, we think about what this season is really about. What's really cool, guys, is that the world's already put up the decorations, and through Advent, we bring the meaning to that, okay? We bring the meaning to that. And Josh designed for us these really cool Advent guides. What it is, is there's some readings for each week, and you could do this either Sunday night, that's kind of more traditional, or you could do it Saturday night because our service is kind of later. You might want to do it on on Saturday nights. And so starting tonight, there'll be a reading that you can do with your family, It'd be great if you had some candles to light, so you light a candle each week, and so second week you've lit two, and then third week you lit three. It's great for kids, because they like fire, and they like to play with the fire and stuff like that, and so it it adds in a fight over who can light the candles, and the real strategic kids like, I'll wait, because they know they're going to get to light more candles if they wait, so you get to see some of those skills. So there's a reading, you light the candle, you discuss it, you pray, and then there's even a playlist with some songs. So there's a little code thing you can snap your phone on and, and get the music for this. You're not singing a cappella, which is very difficult uh, with a family. I mean, some of you guys are great at that. We're not. And then there's an activity that you can do for each week. And so you've got one for every weekend and then also Christmas Eve. So please take advantage of that. Tonight, we're going to start our series in Advent. It's in Luke chapters 1 and 2. We're going to look at just those first four verses today. 
And some of the things we can see from this is that this gospel was written by Luke. And, and Luke was mentioned by Paul as one of his traveling companions. He's one of the ones that was on missions trips with him. He's mentioned in Colossians and 2 Timothy. He's mentioned in Philemon. And Luke was a physician, and that fits. When you start to look through the book of Luke, what you'll find is a real emphasis on healings. He's very interested in the healings, being a physician. He is a Gentile, and so you see that he has a lot of interest in Gentiles being included and other outsiders like women and the poor and the unclean. He's really got an eye for that, you can tell, uh, being a Gentile himself. And he wrote this, as we can see in our reading this evening, to Theophilus. Theophilus is a really common name back then. It looks like he's probably nobility, because he says most excellent Theophilus. Luke wrote this to Theophilus so that he could be certain about the things that he had been taught about Jesus. And tonight we're going to see that Christmas is a gift of certainty in an age of uncertainty. Do you guys feel like we're maybe in a time of uncertainty? You feeling some uncertainty? A little bit of uncertainty. Everybody's cool with it? You guys all good? You guys all feel like things pretty stable? Okay. No, we live in a time of uncertainty, right? There's uncertainty about school. There's uncertainty about work. There's uncertainty about the economy. There's uncertainty about travel. There's uncertainty about church. There's uncertainty everywhere, okay? And so if you're really into control, like, this is not your year, you know? Or maybe it is. This is the year the Lord is really working on that in you, right? Is realizing you don't have control. Welcome. So Christmas is a gift of certainty in a time of uncertainty. And the reason it's a gift of certainty is because, guys, the Christmas story is historical. Take a look at verse 1 again. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. One thing we can notice from these first few verses of Luke is that Luke is writing history. Okay? There's nothing about that beginning that makes you think it's a myth. Okay? He's not writing a myth. It's not like once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away or any of that kind of stuff, right? It is, I did research, I talked to eyewitnesses. Luke then includes all kinds of historical details because he intends to be taken seriously as a historian. In fact, all the gospel writers, all the New Testament writers were meant to be taken seriously as writers of history, as writers of biography. Peter said this, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says it right there. This is history. We, we did historical work of showing you who Jesus was. And John said it this way. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, what we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you that this is eternal life. Okay, you see all the senses there? We saw him, we heard him, we touched him. Like this is history that we're giving. And there's no reason to doubt, guys, that they were telling the truth. Because the apostles and those around them had nothing to gain from telling a lie about this. In fact, they had everything to lose. All except for John were brutally killed for what they reported. I love what Blaise Pascal said about that. He said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Right? People that are willing to get their throats cut, those are the kind of witnesses you believe. And that's the kind of witnesses we have. They were willing to hit the risk and even lost their lives to report what they saw of Jesus. 
Luke says that many others had written histories about Jesus. You see that in verse 1. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that were accomplished among us. It seemed good for me also to do that. Luke's saying that there were lots of people that wrote histories or spoke histories about Jesus. And that makes sense because Jesus had this amazing life, right? And those who saw it were motivated to tell it. Whether they told it orally or they wrote it down, it was told by lots of people. And Luke's aware of that, and he wants to make his own contribution to that knowledge. Some have discounted the way that the testimony came through people that weren't impartial. It's like, well, they're not really impartial historians. Well, I mean, you kind of aren't impartial after you see a man you know, do miracles, and you see the quality of his life, and then you see him get resurrected from the dead. Your partiality is gone at that point, right? And so it makes sense that they are not impartial, but there's no reason to discount their testimony because of that. They were highly affected by what they saw. They became believers in Jesus, and they reported what they actually saw. Another thing that people sometimes misunderstand is is how we got the gospel testimony we got. Have you ever heard anybody say it's kind of like playing telephone? It's kind of like telephone, like telephone or whisper down the alley. It's a game with kids, right? So one kid whispers something to one kid, the next kid, and then that kid whispers to another one and to another one. And at the end, it's a totally different message, right? It's called telephone. And so what some people think when they think about the Gospels is they think, okay, here's Jesus, and here's eyewitnesses that are looking at him, right? So you got people that saw his life. So these are the original people that saw Jesus, right? And what some people think happened is you've got this person that saw Jesus, and he tells a person who tells a person who tells a person who then tells a person, surprise, that writes it down and that that made its way to you, okay? And they say, well, that's like telephone, right? Like the telephone game. Yeah, this person's got a testimony. They tell it, tell it, tell it, and then somebody down the line writes it down. That's not the way the gospel testimony came to you, actually. The way it came to you, in the case of both Matthew and uh, of John, the way it came to you is, see this person that's writing it down? That person and this person are, surprise, the same person. Okay? They're the same person. So a person like John or Matthew, they saw Jesus, they told people, people told people. Then later, down here, they wrote down what they saw. So it is like telephone in the sense that the guy who told the story in the beginning tells it at the end, okay? So when you have that row of kids, the way the game ends is the kid says what he said, okay? That's what you have here. Very secure testimony. The eyewitness actually wrote it down at the end. This person didn't get all his information from a garbled telephone game, okay? Now, in the case of Mark and Luke, it happened a little differently. See this guy right here? This guy, Luke writes a gospel, okay? These are, the, these are the writings, right? Right here, okay? So he writes a gospel, but how did he do it? He didn't just do it off this. No, he went to the eyewitnesses, these people. He interviewed them, and then that came all the way down to you, okay? So in no case is it telephone. In no case is there a way for the message to get messed up here. In fact, there's a great security in this, actually, because whatever Matthew or John said right here and spread throughout the community needs to be the same message here. There's no change in it at that point. You pretty much let the cat out of the bag at that point, right? There's security built into this. So Luke was one of these people that had heard the message. He's not too far removed. He writes it, but he writes it with access directly, not from this guy, whoever this guy is, but direct access to the eyewitnesses. Does that make sense? Okay, so that you have really good reason to believe 
the thing that you've been told about Jesus from these people. And what Luke says in here is that when he did this work, he used standard research, historical research techniques, right? It says in verse 2, eyewitnesses and ministers. Those are one group of people. They're people that saw and spoke what happened with Jesus. And so he probably looked into all the different records that were left, but then he actually interviewed people. Remember, guys, that Luke lived during the same time when a lot of these eyewitnesses were still alive, right? And he wasn't around for the events of his first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, but he was around for half of the events in the, in the book of Acts, right, that he also wrote. In Acts 16.10, you see the second uh, person pronoun changed to we, right? So it's all they did this, they did that, they did this. And then in chapter 16, verse 10, it's like, then we went here. Why? Luke was there. Luke was with Paul. And so Luke had a great advantage, guys, to be able to write the gospel here because not only did he live in a time when he could interview the eyewitnesses, but he was traveling with Paul and he could be interviewed. He could be introduced to all the people he needed to interview, right? He not only was, lived in the right time, but he had access to the people he needed to have access to because he was on that inner circle on his mission trips. And so he interviewed many of the people he wrote about in the book of Luke, apparently even Mary, because some of the stuff in those first two chapters He had to get that information from Mary. There's no one else that would have that stuff. So I'm sure he interviewed Mary as well. Guys, Christmas is a gift of certainty because the Christmas story is truly historical. These things happened. And not only that, they're a part of a greater and bigger story that God's telling. Take a look at verse 1 again. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That word accomplished there in the ESV also has the sense of fulfilled. That what, what Luke's saying here is he's saying these, these events that happen, these Christmas events, they aren't just kind of random historical things that occurred. They're fulfillments. They're part of a greater story. And you might say, well, fulfilled by who? Fulfilled by God. That's the emphasis here, right? Is that Luke's saying when you see these stories about Jesus and his birth, the Christmas narrative, you're seeing fulfillment. You're seeing things those original witnesses should have expected to happen. They should have been longing for it. They should have been waiting for it. Because for thousands of years, guys, God gave promises about the birth of Jesus throughout thousands of years. And so what we see in these first few chapters of Luke is those promises being fulfilled. All of human history, guys, is a story written by God. And it's an amazing story. If you read through the Old Testament, you see that he's constantly putting these little promises and these little foreshadows and things to build intensity for Jesus' coming. And Jesus' coming is that massive hinge to history, right? We still recognize that, don't we? It's 2020. 2020 after what? Well, we didn't get the calendar exactly right. It's about four or five years off, right? But it's 2020, 2020. 20 years from God accomplishing his promise to send a king to save the world. Every time you write the date, that's what it's dated to. It's dated to when God sent his son into the world to be king to save the world. It's pretty hard to ignore this kind of stuff, right? Every time you write a date, you're actually acknowledging that something happened 2,000 years ago that was monumental. The story of the world, guys... In this story of the world, Christmas is one of the major plot points. And it's really cool in the story of the Bible, too. As you're reading through Luke chapter 1 and 2, there's all these aha moments, right? We're like, oh, that's Isaiah 7. Or, oh, that's, you know, you're, you're seeing that the story is being played out. And you're going like, oh, okay, I see how this is coming together. And what that does, those little satisfying moments when you realize this, you're like, oh, this is a really good author. 
You know, have you ever read stories like that where you're, you're about halfway in the middle and maybe you're a little confused and then all of a sudden there's aha moments where you're going like, whoa, this author really knows what he's doing. This story's getting good. I can't wait to see how this ends. That's what we see in chapter one and two of Luke is we see those aha moments where we see that this author is, is a wise author with a well-crafted story. And then we start to see that, you know what? All the billions of little plot points in every one of our lives are going to somehow come together in the most satisfying finale ever. And we see that in the story of Christmas. We see that that's going to happen. So I say, why is this story such a gift? You know, why is, it a, why is it a gift to have a story, a true story, a story of such importance? The reason why it's so important and the reason why this, this story is such a gift and could be a gift to so many people that you know that don't understand these things yet is that we live in a world that's in a story crisis. I don't know if you guys realize that. Just like, like we're suddenly out of toilet paper again, our world is in a story crisis. We're out of meaning. We're out of direction. I don't know if you guys realize that. You feel it? Everybody basically feels this, right? That we're in a story crisis. That some people call it a narrative collapse, okay? <laughs> that we had a narrative going. We kind of thought we knew how the world worked. And then the story fell apart. And almost everybody you know recognizes this to some degree if you talk to them about it. We're in a story crisis. And the reason why we're in a story crisis is that one of the ways that we reject God is we've rejected his story. Okay? So he gave us a story to live in, in creation. And we said, we don't want it. We said we don't want it because we didn't want to be told what was true and right. And we did not want to be told what to do. I mean, who does he think he is anyway? God or something? He is God, okay? Like he has every right to tell us what to do. But we didn't want that. And so we reject this story that he's given us, right? But the problem is, is that we're creatures that need a story. God's created us that way. We need to have some sense for why we're here and what this place is about and what it all means and who am I and where are we going, right? We need a story to live in. And so what we've done is we try to, as a culture, inhabit a bunch of different stories. And I hope you don't think this is like too intellectual or something, but I want to give you a few stories we've tried to live in because I think it is actually is very practical. One of the stories we try to live in is the story of progress. Story of progress is the belief that through advancements in technology and science and social organization, that we're going to create a place of universal happiness and peace. Okay. That's the kind of optimistic story that we kind of are born believing. It's the story of progress. It's somehow we're going to make heaven on earth with our own hands. And it's true, guys, that things have gotten a lot better. I mean, there's no other time you'd want to live in. By basically every metric, this is the time you want to live in, as crazy as it is. But researchers have told us that past a certain point, your happiness doesn't increase with more stuff and more money. You guys realize that? Most of you guys have probably already passed that point. Sorry. You've already passed the point where more money and more stuff is probably not going to make you happier. There's a limit to these things, right? And material prosperity, though it can relieve a lot of fear and, and pain that our ancestors dealt with, it can't give you meaning. Okay? Material prosperity cannot give you meaning. The story of progress isn't really a story. It doesn't really go anywhere. It's like we're going to get more and more stuff, and then what? Right? You guys have read The Great Gatsby. Right? So material prosperity can give you a closet full of clothing, but it cannot give you a life full of meaning. Right? And that's not a good trade, by the way. It's not a good trade to trade meaning for a closet full of clothing. Not at all. And we know tons of successful people, don't we? That are the most miserable people we know. Right? Why? Because you get to the top of the mountain, you realize nothing's up there. The most miserable people are the people that just crested the mountain to discover there's nothing there. People on the way up are like, it's any day now. 
You know, I'm going to make it. It's going to be great. You know, you're on the way up. You're like, you got some hope. Like, yeah, this is terrible. But, you know, once I get to the top and when you get to the top, you know what happens? There's nothing up there. Right. The story of progress doesn't satisfy. That's a story of tried instead of God's story. We've also tried. Some have tried the story of Marxism. And I think this is going to seem esoteric to you guys, but it's not. Okay. Marxism sees the world as a constant struggle between the oppressed and oppressors. Okay. That's not an uncommon story to live in, by the way. Okay. Think about it. Sit back and go. How many people do you know that live in a constant story about where there's oppressed people and oppressors? Okay. Friedrich Engels, the guy who invented the whole thing, said the history of of all society is the history of class struggle, oppressor and oppressed in constant opposition to one another, carried on in an uninterrupted, now hidden and now out in the open fight. Imagine living in that story. That's a real happy story to live in, right? It's a happy story to live in where everybody you know is either oppressed or an oppressor. It's a very miserable way to look at other people. Basically, you look at them this way. Either that other person's oppressing you or you've oppressed them. Either they have your stuff or you've got their stuff, right? This is a very miserable way to live. And we know how the story ends, right? It's been tried in like tons of places, right? Every type of culture and every time it ends in misery, bitterness, and death. So that's the story we've tried. Some are still trying it. Another story we've tried is naturalism. Naturalism is the belief that physical things and laws of nature are the only things that really exist in the world. That everything you love is a product of random chance and time. Okay? If that's true, though, guys, then life is meaningless. There's no way around it. If all that made this is random chance and time, if matter is all there is and physical loss, then your life is meaningless. Everything's meaningless. Stephen Jay Gould, he's passed away now, but he's a biologist. He said this, We are here because an odd group of fish had a particular fin anatomy. And they could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because comets struck the earth and wiped out the dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance that they otherwise would not have had. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenacious species that arose out of Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life into the facts of nature. We must construct these answers for ourselves. Okay, I don't understand that, okay? I don't understand how a meaningless world can be only superficially troubling, okay? But ultimately be liberating and exhilarating. A meaningless world. You know what you call that? There's a saying. It's called putting lipstick on a pig, okay? That's what he's doing there. He's like, this is good. This is fine, This is beautiful, you know? And do you notice what his answer was for a meaningless life? Make up your own. So that's what we've done lately. We've tried to write our own stories. And we write our own story about reality. You decide what's meaningful. You decide what's true. You decide what you're here for. Guys, that's a lot of pressure to write your own story, okay? I'm not an author, right? I can't do this. I'm being expected to create my own story of meaning and purpose for myself. I would have to be... George Lucas, J.K. Rowling, and Tolkien put all together to do this, right? This is not something someone can do. You can't come up with a story of why you exist and what's meaningful and what's good. This is a little above your pay grade. All of us. We can't do this, right? And guys, any story that you wrote for yourself is a fiction by definition, right? You're living in a fictional world of what's important and meaningful. And I think people are starting to see that. There's still a lot of memes that say like, 
Write your own story, you know, follow your heart. You know, these kinds of things all fit into that category of like, you're going to write a story about your own life. You don't need God telling you what you're here for. You, you be you, you know, you decide. And guys, that kind of story writing falls pretty flat in a year like this when you realize you have no control over the plot. It works great if you're young and healthy and got lots of money. Like maybe you can write your own story for a while, but most people can't (laughs) and it falls flat. So now where are we? Well, with those stories all collapsing, it's popular today to fill in the story vacuum with constant stream of highly biased news stories. I guess that's what we're down to. You know, we're really in the dumpster looking for stories to live off of when we're living on a constant stream of highly biased news sources. I mean, you can pick your source that confirms all your biases, pick your own poison, literally, and we all do, right? We all go like, oh, I knew it. It's like, well, you chose that source because they always tell you that. You're like, oh, this confirms everything. Of course it does. This is where you go for that, right? And we can all do it. It doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you're on politically and stuff like that. We can all do that. Guys, those stories are not happy places to live. They are very small, angry, anxious stories. Some of us have tried living them. It's not a pleasant place to be. And it's not so much news. I just finished a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Right? It's an old book. It's mainly about television. So it's kind of older that way. But one of the things he talks about there and he goes, he goes, this is in the eighties. He's like, news isn't really to inform anymore. It's to entertain. Right. And, and he goes through and he goes, look at how it works. It's all just entertainment, but our entertainment's really weird because our news entertainment is basically to outrage us, which is so weird because I don't know of any other entertainment medium where you're like, let me get outraged. Afraid. Maybe you watch horror movies or something, but to look for outrage, to make yourself angry, this is an interesting choice of entertainment, right? I mean, guys, I, I just want you to think about it. Is it a lot of the stuff we call news is really just, it's outrage porn. That's what it is. I mean, it's like porn is to lust, this is to anger. And so anyway, think about it. One of my clients, he texted me on, on Thanksgiving. He texted me one of this crazy, you know, anger-inducing news stories on Thanksgiving with, Happy Thanksgiving! I was like, no thanks, man. You don't look real happy in that story. Not really wanting to join you there. So our, story, our world has a crisis of story. We're story-dependent beings. We need a story. We need to know how to live and who we are and all of that. And so Christmas, guys, is a gift of a story. The birth of Jesus is the major plot point in the history of reality, of the big story of the world, the story of how Jesus has been born to be king and save the world. Guys, that's a story we need to inhabit more deeply. Amen? That's a story we need to inhabit more deeply. And you might say, well, you know, I I don't know that I'm inhabiting a different story. Let me ask you just a few questions. What story do you read about most every day? Okay? What story are you reinforcing by reading about most every day? What story do you dwell on most? Let me ask you this. What story most informs your emotions these days? Okay, this is the story, right? It's the story of the true story of Jesus. And Advent helps us to immerse ourselves and our families in this story. For the next four weeks, let's do that. Let's really put our full effort into immersing ourselves in the story of Jesus. The good news of Christmas, guys, is that Jesus lived a better story in our place. Not true. He lived a better story in our place. Jesus is returning. He's going to make all things new. And before he opens the gates to the world that he's created, he's going to judge the world and we're going to give an account. And the question is, did we live in this world 
in a way that we should be granted admission into the next. And we didn't. Every one of us didn't. We're sinners. We've fallen so short of what God has created us to be. As we look in Luke and we see the, the life that Jesus has, we see that we fall immensely short because Jesus is the life we should have lived, right? And the good news of Christmas is that his story can become ours. That he's willing to make a trade with you tonight. The story of your life and all the things you've done for the story of his life and all the things he's done. So that you before God would be judged on the basis of Jesus' life, not your own. It's an amazing deal, guys. It's an amazing deal. That we before God would be judged on the basis of his beautiful life, not our life of sin, because he on the cross was judged for our life of sin. Christmas, guys, is a gift of certainty. It's a gift of certainty about these things. And I know when I use the word certainty, people kind of like, you know, it, it, it bothers people, especially people that deal with doubts. Uh, you guys might deal with doubts. I deal with doubts. The Bible is very doubter-friendly. Luke here wants to get us and help us out of our doubts by giving us certainty. That's what he says in these first few chapters is that he wants to give Theophilus and us certainty about the things we've been taught. Take a look at verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That word certainty is, is in the emphatic position. It's at the very end of a really long sentence. So all four of those verses are one sentence. And the, the emphatic word at the very end is certainty. Luke wants his accuracy of reporting to give us assurance, to make us certain. Luke, in his second book, in Acts, uh, Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Luke has written this to give us certainty, guys, to give us certainty that he has sent his son into the world to be king, to make the world new, and make him Lord in Christ. He wants to give us certainty tonight that Jesus reigns as king over every atom, over every intention, over every action, and over every outcome in the world. That's the good news that Jesus reigns as Lord and king. See, he's in control of all things. And as Romans 8 tells us, that we can know that God causes all things to work together for our good because Jesus is king, right? And so you look at the story, the one we're living in, the one that's happening right now, the one that's on the news, it seems completely chaotic, right? And yet we have this promise that God works all things. He causes all things to work together for our good. He is the king. He is reigning. And, and Luke wrote this so that he could say to you guys, and if you look at those first few verses, so he could say to you, I did all the research. I checked out the story. I interviewed the eyewitnesses, and it's all true. You should be far more certain than you are. And you should act on that certainty. So that's the gift that we have, that we could be certain that what we've been told about Jesus is true, that we can be certain that Jesus' perfect life is actually prepared for us, a perfect life in the world to come. We can be certain that this world is, is headed for the most satisfying end possible. You guys realize that? I mean, you guys like a good story. This world is headed for the most satisfying end possible. We see that as we read through the story of Luke. You know, we start to go, okay, this author really knows what he's doing. I can't wait to see how this ends. And all the struggles and all the setbacks of this year in our whole lives, what they do is they provide the dramatic tension for that ending. So that ending is going to pop, right? You need dramatic tension. And that's what these struggles are. And guys, that's a gift you can give others. This Advent, ask the Lord to make you more certain. 
right? Ask him to give you more peace. Ask him to give you more joy than you currently have. Crawl into this story of Jesus and don't come out (laughs) and invite other people in, right? We have these Luke books. Um, They're back there in the, in the box. And we'd love for you guys to take as many of these as you want to take. Give these out this Christmas. You can tell them the first few chapters are about the Christmas story and then tell them to keep reading. <laughs> but they're really nicely made. They're, they're great gifts. Give them with cookies to your neighbors, whatever you do. You know, people that you're going to give gifts to, include one of these and give them that gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that, that what you've given us about Jesus is so solid. We have every reason to believe the testimony we've been given. We just thank you for the the way that you inspired Luke to write this, to write this in a way that really speaks to our quest for certainty and to be able to trust. We just thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you have made yourself gloriously known in this world. We thank you, Lord, that like even the date that we write down every day is a testimony of the fact that you've broken into this world to make all things new. We pray we would trust you in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a display of confidence, actually. The Lord's Supper is a display of confidence about the things we've been told about Jesus. Paul said it this way. He said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we do this, we're making a proclamation. Making a proclamation that these things happened, and we know how the story ends. Isn't that amazing? And so every week we do this, as a way to just say, no matter what's happening in the world, we know Jesus is making all things new. And whatever just happened, that too does not phase us. <laughs> We're going to continue to trust Jesus and what he's doing. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're relying on that story and not your own to grant you admission into the world to come, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. This bread represents his very real human body that was marred on the cross. His very real human body that was marred on the cross to remove all of your sin. This cup, it represents his very human blood that drained from his very human veins as he was pierced on the cross. A blood that can remove any sin. There's no sin in this room that you've committed either today or years ago. There's no sin in this room that's stronger than the blood of Jesus. Amen? There's nothing that we have to carry outside of this room. So if you're not trusting in Jesus... I would just ask you, just ask him tonight. You come to him and you say, I want my sins forgiven. I don't want to carry my burden anymore. And he'll remove it and he'll make you new. Let's take this together. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for you to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this and remember that Christ died for you and feed on him in thanksgiving with your heart. Let's take it together. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Let's take the blood together. Father, we trust you. We know and believe that you alone are the author of history. Both this world's history and our personal history. We entrust ourselves, we entrust our families, we entrust all that we have to your holy providence. And we thank you for giving us such a confidence that our sins have been removed, that our lives are secure in your hands, in your hands, our Father's hands. Lord, you love us more than we know. 
and your plans for us are better than we could dream. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.